0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we're in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. It can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. Um, My guests and I either talk about the games that we're enjoying, uh, the the gaming environs that we are exploring. I would say the events that we're playing in, but we're really not doing that at the moment. Or uh, occasionally we're really lucky enough to talk with uh, some of the people who develop and create these games. And today is one of those days. And I'm super excited because this is a guest who I've been meaning to have on Forever. And he was graciously enough, was gracious enough to come on, agree to come on. He's an incredibly prolific game designer, having uh, written tons of games for Osprey and other sources. He's one of the contributing authors for the game magazine Blaster. Uh, he has written Osprey's, I believe, the most popular game that Osprey Games has ever put out, if not one of the, uh, which of course is Frostgrave and Frostgrave Ghost Archipelago. And then, of course, the brand new rank and flank hotness that everyone. Talking about Oathmark with with a catalog like that behind him, of course, I'm talking about Joe McCullough. Welcome to Cast Ice. Oh, thank you for having me, man. It is so good
1: to have you. How are you going? <laughs> I'm doing all right, you know. It's it's lockdown central here, like it is in a lot of places, but um, it's actually easing a little bit here, but
0: yeah, you know, yeah, man, comes it, with its own stresses,
1: but we're <laughs> working through it,
0: yes, so. amen to that. Uh, now, you are UK-based. Uh, yep. It's funny, the two American gentlemen, one in Australia, one in the UK, <laughs> having a ta- talk about international gaming. But yeah, there we go. Um, now, I want to start by talking about the very first thing that you have ever put out in a, as a game, I should say. Um, okay. Because you are a published author. You have put out many, many books, short stories, uh, gaming supplements. You have a very prolific career, Um, but I think it's very cool and I I couldn't go past your very first gaming supplement was for middle earth role play and you wrote it in conjunction with another author, your mom. Yeah. How cool. (laughs) Please tell us about how that (laughs) happened.
1: Okay. um, So, so I was 14 at the time. um, And I guess I'd been, I guess I'd been into gaming for, four or five years at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my dad was my first game master nice. and, um, he'd, he'd been running for me for a few years, mm-hmm. uh, because, because before that he'd read Lord of the Rings to me and I'd become a huge fan of that. And, um, and I, I can't remember exactly how it came about, but my mother's, my mother's an author and has been kind of a struggling was, was a struggling author, uh, for my entire childhood, among mm-hmm. other things. Um, And I I don't know, one day I just went to her and and said, you know what, we can, we could write one of these, we could write one of these supplements for Merp. You could do the, you know, the actual words and I could do all the the gaming stuff, all the the stats and the, Mm -hmm. you know, tables and things like that. And, um, (laughs) stunningly she agreed. I, I, I look back and I wonder if she, she did this just because she thought it would be a good learning experience for me, or if she actually thought it was a good business decision. But, um, whichever she she got in touch with with iron crown enterprises which is the the company that published Mm -hmm. merp and um together me and her worked out a, a proposal for basically a set of adventures and um then they accepted it they accepted the proposal so we we set off to write it and um it's kind of a strange road because um so we wrote we wrote this adventure that was three scenarios and we submitted it to them and um at the time, they ended up taking another book that they had a guy writing. So they, so all of our adventures were set in the Grey Mountains area of Middle Earth, mm-hmm. and they had a guy who was writing kind of the, the background material for the G- Grey Mountains. And originally, they were going to publish them in separate books, but then they decided to squash them together um, and put, them out, put out a book called The Grey Mountains. So there's actually three authors on it, uh, me, my mother, and another guy who we never even spoke to. <laughs> That's um, funny. And just to make it even more confusing, they put out the book literally as they were on the brink of bankruptcy. Um, yeah. And thus it's, it's become one of the most rare of the Mert books because it had such a low print run. And um, yeah. And it, eventually they did actually claw their way out of bankruptcy and did, did pay us like two years later. But um, I didn't, I didn't care to be honest, cause I wasn't doing it for the money. Perhaps mom right. cared a lot more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Right. I,
1: you know, I got my name in print. I got, I got imprint in, mm-hmm. in Middle Earth, um, and you know I think I think there was a hugely important lesson that I learned, and it, it had nothing to do with kind of the craft of, of writing or or the craft of game design, but it was just the lesson that if you try, then good things might happen. You know, yeah. getting getting published at age fourteen just showed me that this is a possibility and yeah. that's something that very few people get that early on in their life. Um, and that, that kind of encouragement. And I think that that had a huge effect long-term in making me think, hey, you know what, I can, I can do this,
0: you know? Well, as the layman so. observer, I think your parents have set you up for, you know, an amazing, successful, <laughs> uh, amazing success, uh, successfully, uh, God, it's been a long day. Sorry guys. A, sorry. uh, a succ- an amazingly successful career in the, in the gaming world. I mean, clearly there have been, uh, rejections along the way. And I have heard you speak of those on other podcasts. <laughs> yes. But, um, to have, to be encouraged, uh, like you were both to, not only to have the, the Lord of the Rings read to you as a child, but then yeah. to have a dad who then sat down with you and game mastered, you know for you to engage with that environment and then a mom who's willing to sit down and then help you to take your ideas um and 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 take those adventures that maybe you've been having in your head or that you've been wanting to have and then to to put those into print and then to have that actually published for other fans of the game at the time I mean that's amazing as you say it just opens the realm of possibilities uh, in a really yeah. exciting way, um, as a primary school teacher, I can't tell you how amazing that that is <laughs> to hear.
1: It's it's something that I, I didn't fully appreciate, I think, until I became a parent. And, um, you know, now I think about that lesson and, you know, that lesson is they took the interest in what I was in. I mean, obviously he read me Lord of the Rings because he, because he loved it. But, right. but the fact that I then wanted to take that into something new, into this gaming that you know, he didn't know or understand at the time, you know, is the lesson for me of pay attention to what my kids are interested in and, and, and be willing to learn and and interact with them on that. So, I mean, they're, they're only three and six, so they're only just starting to kind of learn (laughs) Mm -hmm. what these things are that they're interested in. But, but hopefully I, you know, can take that lesson forward with them and, and hopefully give them that same kind of boost.
0: Well, if I I can segue forward um, to the lessons that you learned working with your parents, um, the games that you have created later in life have been uh, really excitingly narrative-based. One of the great things about Frostgrave, it it, it has such a, both the original game and the later game under a similar name in a new location, um, they have incredibly rich... Uh, backgrounds and and sort of i know some people call it the fluff but worlds to yeah. explore literally explore find the treasures <laughs> monsters and it's not about curb stomping your opponent across a tabletop it, it's all about the story of playing you know exploring these ruins finding treasure vanquishing foes uh but in, in it's I have heard it de- uh, described many, many times as sort of role-playing light. But even then, when you jump forward into Oathmark, which is, you know, a, a, a traditional rank-and-flank war game, um, it, again, you are the king of a kingdom. And it's your kingdom and the the parts within it that make up the whole of your army list creation. So, again, super narrative-focused. Um is that because you yourself were an author before you went into game design, do you think? Or did that tie to your childhood a little bit of um, both? What do you think?
1: I, th- I think it mostly, yeah, it goes back to when I got into gaming. Mm. Um, and, and partly that is, yeah, most of most of my early gaming is role playing, which is a much more kind of open and self-creative brand of gaming than than war gaming traditionally is mm. but even but even if you take the war games of the time something like rogue trader it's a much more open game it and is. a much more open universe than than the, than the 45k universe is now and um and i understand why there's been a a transition you know if if you're trying to set up a company and make money you need a kind of more solid ip and you're, you're trying to sell specific miniatures and stuff mm-hmm. like that but So I think some of my game writing is a reaction to the way that that the game market has gone. Um, It's, it's not to say that it's bad, but it's just to say that here is another way to, to approach these games. And this is the way I prefer to approach these games because I think this is the way I played them when I was a kid. And when I was, you know, when the passion's burning the hottest, because it's all new and you're finding out these things and you're, you know, trying to recapture some of that today with these games. Absolutely.
0: Well, it's also exciting that these games are, and related to that, they are miniature agnostic. Now, North Star Miniatures does make gorgeous models, which are photographed and are in these books. But you very clearly stay in both rule sets that you can use whatever models you want. And people have been. And uh, it just opens the doors for creativity so people can... You know, if they particularly like the aesthetic of a particular type of model, they can either build a warband uh, or an entire army uh, army around that, depending on what game they are playing.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, I think part of that is, so I can't, coming out of role-playing, I, I painted a, I painted all my first miniatures for role-playing. Mm-hmm. And um, when I kind of left role-playing behind, which is kind of when I left America behind, mm-hmm. Um you know, I no longer had a role-playing group, but I could still paint minis, so I continued to paint minis. But I didn't have anything to do with all these minis, <laughs> and right. so eventually I ended up writing a rule set so I could use all the minis, and that was Frostgrave. So, you know, it seems only fair to say, you know, I wrote this game so that I could use all the minis I've collected. I want to be able to, I want to let people use all the minis they want to collect, um, you know, and give them the excuse because that, in some ways, the games are just an excuse. I mean, so much of the hobby takes place outside or away from the gaming table, either painting or planning or, you know, so that the game is just your excuse for all the other hobby elements you enjoy, you know, the collecting of the figures and the painting of the figures. So I want to write rule sets that maximize both the enjoyment at the table, but also that enjoyment you get away from the table so that you're really getting the most you can out of the entire
0: hobby. Absolutely. And I guess in a related question, um, I guess if we're talking directly about Oathmark, and I know Frostgrave uh, fits this as well, um, but with with Oathmark, as I was reading through it, it is a really exciting system in that it's a more traditional fantasy. Now, I I started my gaming career um, in the early mid eighties. Uh, and, right. uh, I read dragon magazine religiously <laughs> forever as Absolutely. a kid. Um, and yep. while I didn't necessarily always have people to role play with reading dungeon, reading dragon, playing dungeons and dragons, or reading dungeons and dragons books, um, reading fantasy novels of that era, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, I had a strong love of, you know, a traditional high fantasy that over mm-hmm. time was almost hijacked by the Games Workshop version. But to look back at, 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 or to look at what's in this book, the armies that it allows you to play is refreshingly old school, if that makes sense. Right. What uh, what sort of drove that? Was that just your your upbringing? In the, in the, it sounds like your role-playing uh, love tied into the way that you created these games and the universe that they're in.
1: Yeah, um, I guess part part of that is coming from America where we didn't have the dominance of Games Workshop in the same way that you do here in Britain. Right. You know, it, it, it was a secondary gaming company, and it's, you know, you may not have been aware of its world, and instead of going, that's an orc, it, you were much more likely to say that's their interpretation of an orc because there are actually lots of other orc interpretations around for you to see Mm -hmm. um and yeah and since then i've also you know i've read a lot of mythology i've read a lot of folklore and 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 i love that you know i essentially love fantasy of any of any stripe be that you know kind of modern written fantasy or that's the, the old myths and legends and and i want to be able to i i don't want to confine my rules to saying you've got to play it one way or the other you know if you want to play these rules using a more games workshop interpretation where you know the elves only fight with elves and that's just the way it is then that's fine but if you want to go to the the older idea of like the fey kingdom where elves and goblins were all kind of part of the same you know overarching uh world Mm -hmm. Or kingdom to their arms to themselves. You can do that. You know, you can you can pair them up. And so again, it was just like, how can I give people the most freedom to interpret their kingdom and their army the way they want? Um, And you know, you're always there. There's always when I think of balance in terms of game design, my balance is always
0: the idea
1: of the balance between giving players freedom versus I have to define. Rules to a certain level, or there's no game. So (laughs) yeah, exactly. So it's determining that balance is is my first goal in in balancing a game.
0: Well, it's really exciting to to flip through the units for this game. Um, As you say, Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily broken up by army list; it's sort of one list. But to see entries uh, like the the Lindworm. Or, you know, turning the page <laughs> after that. I want to make sure I pronounce this right. The Wolver. Uh, and yeah. just to just to flip through and to see some of these, the knucker, uh, the the Barach. Uh Again, I don't even know how to pronounce some of these. The Surma. And right. you're like, okay, I've been wargaming and fantasy gaming a long time.
1: I usually <laughs> know these things.
0: Quick. Read the right. blurb. What is that? And it's cool. Yes. Some of these do
1: exist, like in in places like D anD D that have also mined fantasy, but for Mm -hmm. whatever reason they've not come to the fore uh, in terms of you know they're the recognizable monsters, but but they're just great mythological monsters, and um, you know I wanted to use them and, and give them. So in some ways it's like I'm both being traditional and new at the same time, <laughs> which is pretty pretty hard to do these days when you've got this many games out there and, and people have been mining the same stuff. But uh, but it's fun. And and a lot of them are kind of archetypes that yeah. that you can take. And I mean the nucker is is just really another form of, of dragon, but it it gives it a little bit of distinction and and allows people to think about it a little bit differently. Um, yeah. So it's well, a lot of fun,
0: really. <laughs> it is. Well, let's talk about that one list then. Now, we I, okay. you did or we have mentioned throughout our conversation a couple times that you can have different races within the same army and yeah. we, in in Oathmark, you have you are sort of the king. Um and the general, usually at these with these games, you are sort of the the tabletop general overlooking the battlefield. Yeah. And to that degree, you are as well. But because you are sort of the king and you are considering your kingdom, where you are pulling your troops from, where you're getting your levies from depends on the makeup of your kingdom. So if you have uh, an elven city, you can pull certain units from that. If you have caverns, you can pull certain units from that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, can you talk about that, that, that as a process when you are building an army, because it's fascinating it's really cool. And so it's a really original idea that I haven't seen in, you know, decades of wargaming.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny it, th- that idea actually began thinking about a different part of the game. So one of my goals, when I, when I sat down to, to work on Oathmark was to have a mass battle game that actually had a campaign system that was more reminiscent of a skirmish game. Right. Um, so in a lot of skirmish games, like, like Frostgrave, um, you have this war band and it builds over time. You get, you know, you go up in levels and you, you get more treasure and you, you add new guys and stuff like that. And you can't really do that very well with a mass battle game because obviously you can't have your army and have that army get better in the sense of like, I just buy better units and stuff like that because right. it, it so quickly throws the balance off that, that nobody's going to want to play it. So I thought, well, what can I do to, to have a fun campaign system where you get some of that feel even if you're doing something mechanically different. Right. And I realized that being, being kind of a student of military history, one of the things that I looked at and thought that most war gaming doesn't capture is that, In wargaming, we tend to think of our army as this fixed unit, you know, this is Mm -hmm. the army I have, the army I always play with, but that's not very, that doesn't actually reflect the history of warfare well at all. Right. Armies are very temporary constructions, you know, based on whatever troops you could muster at a specific time. Right. And so I thought in the campaign system, what I'd like to do is have it so that over time, you're... You're able to draw upon more different units to construct your army, and that's how you kind of grow as a as a kingdom. Um, so, so I started focusing on this kingdom. You could have this kingdom, and it could actually add units over time, so that whenever you create an army, you have more to draw upon. And then I thought, well, how do you do that? Well, you capture territory, and then that just got me thinking. That just made me realize that actually, that's how you construct an army list for this game: is yeah. you have different territories in your kingdom so that then fed back into the kind of core rules of the game of constructing an army. You don't build an army, you build an army list. And the way you do that is by, by building your kingdom. Right. And this, this just also feeds into the, the whole kind of narrative wargaming that I like to push again, it gives you something fun to do mm-hmm. outside of the game. I mean, everybody likes building armies, you know, pointing it out and stuff. That's, that's just a, a classic fun part of wargaming. but it now you've got an extra step. Which is actually, I get to envision the entire kingdom that's that's producing this army, and um, and the different armies it can produce at different times.
0: So, well, let me be clear for those who haven't had a chance to pick up the book, because I know COVID's made supply sometimes a little tricky on the far side of the world. Um, there are point values for every unit in the game, just like you would associate with any other traditional tabletop war game. Um, So you can play balanced games, but um, the way it generally works though, as, as Joseph just said, you build your army list using your kingdom. And then from there you build your army, um, which is such a cool process that, uh, you know, again, haven't seen it in any other game. It's fantastic. And it really does allow you to come up with some interesting combinations thematically uh and not just how do i build the the you know the best list out of the most efficient units no 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 this isn't like that (laughs) this is let's build a story and then let's create something with that which you know can be difficult in in in, when you're trying to create a a, a war game from scratch like you've basically done you're not using anyone else's ip um but rather than giving this great big universe, which to a degree you have, um, mm-hmm. it is it is a set in time. There isn't black powder. um, It is sort of early Middle Ages, but fantasy. Um, But also you're allowing people to create their own stories, which is really exciting.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's 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 just what I've always used wargaming for. You know, I guess yeah. I've. I've used wargaming gaming to, to role play in a sense, um, mm. you know, to create, to create my own stories and, and the kingdom is just a really great way to do that. And it just gives you so much to, to think about and to have fun with. That's and right. um, and I, I also think like, because I'm not deep down a, a highly competitive gamer, you know, I'm not someone who goes to tournaments and I'm not someone that worries too much about winning or losing. Obviously I try to win, but that's right. not why I'm there. That's not yeah. what's gonna determine whether I have a good time or not. So the the army building system I use is is harder to balance, say, than, than something more like Games Workshop where they know you are limited, if you're playing Lizardmen, you are limited to just these units, so we just have to kind of balance this army within itself. Mm-hmm. Um, since I, I was less concerned with that. I could have a much more open system that says, actually, I don't, I can't balance armies within themselves. I'll, I'll have to look for balance a different way. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm, I'm not going to worry about it quite as much as they would. So I get a lot more freedom in in adding units and and the way you can build your army. So.
0: But the game is in and of itself internally balanced. Um, it doesn't suffer from Codex Creep, for example, because um, it has the the full uh, list of units. I don't want to say army list because that right. isn't accurate <laughs> in this game. But you do have orcs, you have goblins, you have humans, you have dwarves, you have elves, and a range of other fantasy races that are in there as well that you can army build and world build with. Um, and so... It's it's exciting as far as that goes because everything is balanced internally, so you don't have that codex creep. Um, but you know, I can I can hear a couple of people in the internet calling out in the background. Well, where does that leave <laughs> growth for the game? Well, right there's there are more attachments coming, um, and they're pretty cool. So you don't necessarily have quote unquote um, evil races necessarily in the book. Um, but Oathbreakers is coming up down the road, and that isn't necessarily evil per se. But with an Undead expansion, but then you yep. also have um, uh, Battlesworn, which is more elite units. Is that right? And it's more yeah. adds more to the campaign system. Can you tell us a little bit about more ma- how the game is going to go into the future?
1: Yeah, so. I mean it's true you you won't have army books in the same way that 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 you have with with most games. Um, but you do have something like Oathbreaker the second one coming which which does introduce the undead and it, so it's presented at least a chunk of it is presented in some ways like an army book. Here are all the undead units. Mm. It's you know you can if you want build a fully undead army but you can also pick and choose, you know, actually I'd like my army to have a few of these. You can throw those in um and and like you said you know the the key there is not to balance undead as an army it's about it's about balancing each of those units versus the units that already exist right um and i wanted to go back to to one point you made there because it's very important to me like that the game has no morality inherent in it Mm. so yeah elves are not good orcs are not evil um anybody is whatever you want them to be and that's that's not me making any kind of political statement or anything. That's me wanting to give players as much freedom as possible to imagine their kingdom yeah. the way they want to. So something like undead, which are traditionally viewed as evil, there's no reason that has to be. I mean, if you, you know, look at, um, look at the Lord of the Rings and you've got you've got certainly evil undead in the form of the Nazgul, but you've also got undead that fight for the side of the good in, in the army Army of the dead. dead.
0: Um, There you go. Yeah, exactly.
1: So they are oath breakers literally. And, um, but they end up fighting for the good guys. So there's, there's plenty of ways to interpret things any way you want. And, you know, I give some examples of that, you know, maybe these warriors are, are drawn back due to their devotion to a King or a family line or something. So that even death doesn't quite stop them from wanting to, to defend their kingdom. Um, and so, in that way, again, you can even if you've already got an army that you see as all shining knights and, you know, fighting for the good, that doesn't mean you can't add some undead cavalry to your army as well. You know, it's just opening up possibilities. So that, so that's one way the game can grow um, and will grow. Obviously, that one's a little more dependent on, on North Star and Osprey being able to make miniatures. They don't want to run too far ahead of what can be produced because right. while you can move use any miniatures you want a obviously they prefer it if you use theirs, but also yeah. <laughs> some of these units don't have a lot of alternatives in, in the market
0: you know. That's right. There are it. a lot of elf spearmen out there from variety exactly. <laughs> companies, but there are other models that just literally because you have pulled them from more traditional mythology don't always have representations. And besides, how many dwarf spearmen are there out there these days? Games Workshop <laughs> uh, remarkably killed those off. I have a unit of them way back from the original Marauder days. But you don't know, because a lot of people ape Games Workshop's IP or I, Games Workshop's uh, version of fantasy, you don't see dwarf spearmen all that often. So
1: no, which is you know funny because in some ways you think actually the spear is a perfect weapon for, for
0: dwarves. Dwarf, you know right? they they mm-hmm. lack
1: reach, so how do you make up for reach? You have a long stick, but <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, you though. know, and the, and also dwarf bowmen, which isn't overly commonly in fantasy, probably because of of Games Workshop. You know, it's all crossbows or mm-hmm. or handguns, and neither of which exists. In Oathmark, so you got to look a little bit harder. Exactly.
0: Well, it it, it is uh, it is an exciting game. Um, I know we've talked about some rank and flank games on this podcast from time to time, Um, but this is sort of a, a more traditional rank and flank game in that. Um, you have units that are in blocks that are maneuvering around the table, uh, you know, careening into one another uh, in epic clashes like you would imagine being in a scene from Braveheart. Um, <laughs> but as that's happening, um, as the units are interacting, it, it, it is it it's a callback to war games when the front rank fights and you roll the dice depending on how many people can actually swing in that combat, how many people are in the front. And then the guys in the back aren't necessarily adding to the attack so much as they are lending their support to the guys who are. Um, Joe, can you talk to us a little bit about that process? Because reading it, it, it felt, it felt good. Um, from someone who who's played a lot of games over the years. I was reading through it yep. going, oh yeah, I like this. This feels familiar. This feels nice. Um, but at the same time, it was fresh and innovative.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's one of those things where mechanics worked in my favor to mm-hmm. to, to feel right. Because wh- where I started with that was one of the first questions I asked when I started working on this was what dice do I want to roll and how many of them? Mm-hmm. And and that's a very meta kind of thing to think about, and that's, I don't think most game designers start there. But but for me, I think you know, what, rolling dice is the thing I'm going to do just about the most during this game. So how mm-hmm. can I make that the most fun? And um, you know, the first there there are two things I wanted to avoid. I didn't want to roll one die for a unit because that just never felt right to me. You know, right. here I've got twenty dwarves and they hit you, and I roll one die. I don't know, it just doesn't seem like enough. It doesn't. That the act of rolling doesn't match what's happening on the table right. you know on the flip side i don't really want to roll 20 dice either because <laughs> right while that's that's fun once or twice it gets really kind of tiresome to do it again and again during the game
0: yeah and um
1: it also tends to flatten your your randomization curve to such an extent to to take some of that fun out of it as it really well. does mm-hmm. so so i eventually decided you know what's what would be really fun is to roll a small handful of dice every time, and um, and I selected ten siders because uh, six sided dice just didn't have enough uh, possible results right. that I knew I wanted from the game. I needed a little more uh, wiggle room than, than six sided dice gave you, and um, and I thought five five is a good number to fit in your hand, and um, it's so that that number five just Suddenly became really important to the design of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I used the five as okay, all units are going to be five figure fronted. Well, not all of them, but but your kind of your standard man or orc sized units are all mm-hmm. going to be fronted by five figures, and um, and then you can have ranks beyond that. And so thus it just works out that that front rank is that five dice, and and the guys behind that are are in support. And um, this also just allowed me to really simplify the rules compared to some other rule sets and in ways that not everyone's going to like, but in ways that were fun for me, which means I don't worry too much about, uh, organizing units and reorganizing units. So like a unit is going to be five front and it's going to stay that way for the entire game unless it gets down to three guys, you know, I don't have to worry about forming a line or or doing that. And that made the actual, a lot of the game design much easier and made the game flow a lot better. So you're trading off some of that kind of realism in, in terms of being able to deploy your guys in different formations versus how fun and fast the game flows. Yeah. So, exactly. so that's really where all that comes from. And then it was just, you know, how can I balance rolling five dice <laughs> in every situation? Which which was tricky, but but I think I got there. So.
0: And then once both sides have rolled the dice, you get that that combat resolution and then that determines if units are disheartened or if they, you know, if they flee, if they are disordered. Um, you talk about that process a little bit because again, it, it absolutely plays into the narrative of how a battle would play out on the tabletop.
1: Yeah, what well, I guess one of the things some people will find odd, because it's again not traditional, is that when two units hit each other, they both fight they both inflict casualties mm-hmm. you know and they both suffer the results which that's just one of those things no matter whether you're playing a skirmish game or a mass battle game i always really got annoyed by it <laughs> like, yeah i just why is it your guy runs up and beats on mine with a sword while mine just stands there, stands you know, there just exactly made no sense to me whatsoever so in, in pretty much all my games um i'll probably break this as soon as i say it but yeah, you know, exactly in most of the ones i've written so far, Whenever guys come into contact, they fight, and both of them have the chance to kill each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I thought that was even more important here. It also just it speeds up the game. It does immensely because you know instead of two combats to determine the same out thing, you only have one, mm-hmm. and uh, so resolution happens much quicker. And that's that was one of the overall design goals was, I wanted to make this game fast relative to, to kind of, war games in the past that could could. No could be a bit slow that's right so units move faster they they die quicker <laughs> yeah they maneuver better um again people who perhaps may want a more traditional reflex historical battle may not like that but i think people who are more interested in a quick fun game are, are gonna find that
0: yeah to their liking Well, I I have not been able to play it because of shutdown, Um, but I do have armies (laughs) ranked up and ready to go. Uh, But just having read through the rules a couple times and watched a couple of videos online and then gone back to the rules to make sure I I got it, um, the rule set, as you say, seems... I don't want to say streamlined, um, but it, it, it seems like it plays well, uh, as in it, it's clear, it's relatively quick, but by the same token, it has the granularity and the depth, so you can actually have some tactics, um, which I think is really exciting in a game system. Um, and yeah, I think will really add to replayability.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's its tactics are perhaps in a different place in the game than, right. than people are used to. It's really about a game of the order in which you move units, or at least the order in which you try to move units during during the game. So instead of completely, I move your my army, you move your army, we're alternating units. I move a unit, you move a unit, or at least you attempt to activate a unit and I attempt to activate a unit. Exactly. So there's a lot more back and forth, but it becomes very important, you know, Am I going to move the guys on this flank, or am I going to move the guys on this flank at the moment? So, so that's where a lot of your thought is, um, and, and partly that's because there isn't as much tactical thought put into army building, you know, because right. you're not building your army specifically to win. You're building it because it's fun. Yeah. You got to find the tactics somewhere else.
0: Yeah. On the tabletop, heaven forbid, in a battle, exactly. <laughs> who would have thunk?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now it is. I, it, I should. I should say before we sort of jump ship and start talking about Frostgrave and some of the other games that you've written, that Oathmark um, also, because I know this is one of the questions that folks always ask, uh, does have a magic system? It does have magic items, um, but it's got sort of a menu that you can pull out of. It isn't race specific magic items, which makes sense because there. Well, there are race specific spells, um, yeah. but it's not army's particular magic items. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how the magic system and the magic items work in this game?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, it is it is interesting. <laughs> kind of race is important in that one instance in the game and in the magic because there is an elf spell list, there is a dwarf spell list, there is a human spell list. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, any army can contain any one of these wizards, so any player still has access to that type of, of magic if they want it. Um, and magic's always been quite a tricky thing for mass battle games yes. to find that, that balance of it's worth using, but it's not dominating. Um, and obviously, that's <laughs> that's what me and every other game designer was going for, and so my approach mostly has been that these wizards are there in support of the rest of the army, so while you can throw a fireball or something like that, um, it's rarely going to be a huge game-changing option, whereas casting a spell that gives a unit an extra move or an extra maneuver could actually be game-changing if used in the right circumstance right know, if it might just give you that flank attack or or you know or if it boosts your morale right at the moment when you need it most so that's that's mostly what magic is in this game is our, our enhancements or tweaks or momentary things you can do to the units on the table um and there's there's lots of levels of, of wizards. You've got your powerful wizards that are much more likely to get their spells off and actually know more of these spells going right. in, and then you've got your low level wizards. And um, but they're also, you know, they can be quite squishy. So you gotta <laughs> mm-hmm. you gotta keep them safe and keep them hiding most of the time. So yeah. Um, but I just you know, magic's such a such a cool part of, of the games that, that I had to have it. Magic items were actually really tricky um, in the sense because the characters in Oathmark are not generally heroes in the cast classic, they right. can slaughter units and monster sense. So they're broken yeah. down into three character categories one of which is spellcasters, the other one of the others is commanders, and those guys actually modify how well you can use your units, how many units you can use at a time and how, how right. morale works. Um, they're and then leaders. Champ- yeah. yeah, they're actual leaders. And then you do have champions who are better fighters, but they're really just modifiers to the units they're in. They're not right. kind of game changers. So magic items, you know, while you can give one of these guys kind of the magic sword, it's perhaps less important than it is in, in systems where that guy is already a big hero that you expect mm-hmm. to do big things. So, but but you do have that option uh, to give him the magic sword, and there are times it'll come up. Um, but there's other magic items that are more changing the abilities of a unit that they're with, or changing the abilities of that that single figure. Um, so, they're they're partly there for for that. They're partly there for narrative reasons. They're partly there because. I designed Oathmark so that you can play it with very small armies. Yeah. Um, and, and those match games can be more important there where, you know, they represent a bigger outlay of your army and, um, you know,
0: you're more likely to
1: fight man on man kind of s- scenarios. So.
0: Well, in Oathmark, you're unlikely to have a character cleave through half of your opponent's army, which I'm a fan of, by the way, that it doesn't yeah. do that. <laughs> um Can you talk to us a little bit about, as you said, the scale? Um, Because Mm -hmm. I've been looking at it as sort of the traditionally scaled size of uh, rank and flank games that I'm used to seeing. But when I'm seeing people lay these out, it's often almost 3,000 points um, (laughs) to get the size of the battle that, you know, I quote unquote am used to. Um, right. And so this is a system, because of the point values the way they are, you can play it at a fairly low model count, uh, but the points support that uh, in a really interesting way that not all games can.
1: Yeah, I mean, my, my goal was to design a, a system that could could play with 30 figures on a side or 300, and that, that number 30 is, is somewhat arbitrary, but is is the number of figures you get in a box of Oathmark miniatures. Right. Although my 30 goblins, I'm gonna be playing with 30 and you're gonna be playing with 10 elves, but <laughs> because it always works out. But um but yeah because of again the way like I said it's about the order that you that you move units in, that kind of tactical thought doesn't change whether those units are big or small. So in a in a game where you've only got 30 guys you might still have six units of five guys so you're still maneuvering and tr- figuring out what order to move that in whereas if you're playing with 300 you probably have more than six units but you may only have 10 units they just happen to have you know 20 guys or whatever in them so the game is still played the same way it's just that uh, you're working with different orders of magnitude obviously when five guys hit five guys you might see one or two casualties on the side when right. 20 guys 20 guys you'll see five or six casualties aside when the, that clash occurs so nice. so yeah it's, it's it's again it's it's to allow players to want to play games that they want to play you know some people love those huge games other people are just know they're never going to paint that many figures so give them the option to play play with smaller
0: armies yeah exactly well um I think that is a great way to sum up that that it it is a game that can be played at many scales. It is a game that gives you a lot of narrative uh, in a rank-and-flank game, a game that really does dig into some really interesting army-building options but has the tactical flexibility on the tabletop to give you a good game um, that is fun to play with your friends. And so, guys, Oathmark... Um, many of you have it already. I've seen lots of people online with it. Um, I'm very excited to say that it's finally arrived in Australia given COVID, uh, shipping times. Uh, but yeah. And the, in fact, the second book is coming soon. Uh, and shortly thereafter, of course, we'll get, um, the Oathbreakers as well. So um, there are plenty of things coming for this game. So watch this space. Uh, I'm hoping to play some games of it on the YouTube channel once uh, (laughs) restrictions lighten in Victoria and I can start playing again. But yes, this game looks like a lot of fun and I'm very excited to play it. So yes, check it it out.
1: It's it's funny to me that I I have this thought that it might be the game that has the worst uh, percentage of people who bought it versus people who played it. Right. Ever. You know, you know, it came out like the week that Britain went into lockdown, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, so lots of people ordered it, but lots of the world was going into lockdown at the same time. So I don't know how many people have ever actually been able to to play with another human being. So <laughs> it has been great. Hopefully to that f- it. but luckily, again, it's a game that encourages a lot of outside of the game activity. So hopefully, yeah. it's given some people some fun
0: during this time. Well, I've been a member of the Facebook group for Oathmark for a while now, and watching people build their armies in preparation for the game coming out has been awesome because so many people have been so excited about the wonderful models that Northstar have been putting out, um, the the plastic boxes that, as you say, have 30 guys in them, um, that people have been using for Warlords of Erewhon, for other fantasy games forever. Um, obviously, uh, Frostgrave, which I'm holding in my hand, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, but... Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's exciting to see such hype for a game that the second all of a sudden it's like yes I can get oh no I can't I'll have to hold off. Well,
1: it it also it fills a void, um, you know, when when Games Workshop essentially moved away from that style of gaming. Um, yeah. No, nobody's quite filled that. You know, there's there's games like Kings of War, which which give you that big army experience, but don't have the same kind of, uh, you know, individual figure of experience, don't have individual casualty removal and, you know, and construct
0: arguable, army. And That's arguably perhaps not the narrative.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know Kings of War that well, in, in all honesty, so I don't know. But um, but yeah, it. it I, I gather it's been pushed more as a tournament game, whereas Oathmark, is is more of a narrative game, uh, exactly. and again, you know that's great. There's exactly. there's something for everybody in the industry right now.
0: That's right, so. and uh, in some cases, you can use the same army because of the way they're ranked for both. Yep. So there exactly. you go, guys. You don't have to buy a new army. Same army. Two great <laughs> game systems. Um, well, let's talk Frostgrave because okay. this is uh, this is your most prolific game. Um, it's yep. the game that you've won many awards for. And is the game that I mentioned earlier, which is, it I believe it is Osprey's most popular tabletop game ever um, by a country mile, I believe. And that includes <laughs> quite a lot of some of my favorite games. I am a very prolific Gaslands player. I absolutely right. love that game. And it was everywhere forever. But this far exceeds that in popularity. So, I mean, this is a big deal. Um, Now, this is a skirmish-style game where you have a wizard um, and you lead a party of adventurers into a a city that has been magically frozen for a 1,000 years but has recently thawed to the point where people can go in and search for treasures. And along the way, there are monsters, other adventurers, and uh, other things that you can encounter on your adventures. Uh, Am I summing this up about right? Yeah, sounds good. Right on. Um, Well, talk to us a little bit about how that game is different from Oathmark and um, its wild popularity. Because, I mean, it's been going for years. And I literally, what, there are 24 uh, releases for it uh, on the Osprey website. Uh, I do realize that there are several novels in the world by very famous authors. um, Ben Coulter, for example. Um, yep. I mean, amazing stuff, but, um, to, to see so many source books to take you into this world really takes, I mean, shows a lot of de- depth, um, for a, <laughs> for a, what is at its surface, a skirmish game.
1: Yeah. For, for what started as kind of, uh, a bit of a laugh,
0: uh, as they say over here, mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, as an attempt for just me to, to create the game that I wanted because i just didn't feel it quite existed at the time um so yeah i mean before before frostgrave i didn't consider myself a game designer um i was a writer who occasionally dabbled in gaming stuff Mm -hmm. but frostgrave completely changed the course of of my writing certainly it's probably changed the course of my life to a a pretty decent extent and Mm -hmm. um and it's been fun. <laughs> nice. It's been a
0: fun ride. Well, so, um, it, it, again, just like Oathmark, this feels very high fantasy. Um, you have yeah. spellcasters, but of a, a variety of types, um, and you have your wizard, and they may have an apprentice, uh, but you have you all kinds of different kinds of spellcasters who um, have different ha- access to lots of different spells, and um, what you know, hopefully COVID willing, um, Frostgrave 2, the sequel, um, is about to come out. Um, now that has even more spells and has even more adventures and scenarios that you can take your adventurers on. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how Frostgrave is evolving going into its second edition?
1: Yeah. So uh, one slight correction, there's the same number of spells, but they're, they're they're better spells. Ah, (laughs) It's okay. There you go. So, um, it's funny, when I when I set out to write Frostgrave, I was like, I'm going to write 100 spells. And then I got to, a, I closed in on 80 and I decided, you know what, I'm going to write 80 spells. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> I don't have, but even then, like, um really, I got to about 60 and said, I'm going to write 80 spells. And um I got to the point where actually, you know what, looking back, all 80 are not equal. Um, they're not. And so... You know, some of them are just never played or never taken because they're not good enough or strong enough. And that was one right. of my major goals for, for doing this second edition was to make sure that those 80 spells in the game are all of value and all have their place and all, um, you know, are desirable to take mm-hmm. for a wizard. Um, I think that... that So crossgrade came about for, for two reasons. Um, one was I wanted a... War game that had more story to it. Um, you know, traditionally, war gaming is has been, although you know, some games have had campaign systems. War gaming is always focused on the one game you're playing right now, um, mm-hmm. and I wanted to focus on following the story of your characters through a campaign, um, and and in this case, following the wizard. So th- that was one goal. The other goal was in skirmish gaming, I'd often been dissatisfied by the amount of decision making that a player has. So in if if you take most war games, especially ones where you know you're talking swords, um, if you have 10 guys aside, there's there's really a not not a lot to decide because they tend to walk at each other and then, and then they fight and mm-hmm. whoever's left standing wins. And that, that can be fun once in a while, but you need something that, that gives you more decision with, than whether I turn left or I turn right. right. And um, so the, the way I found that decision-making was by, by giving you a wizard and giving you this big range of spells and every turn, giving you the option to cast any of those spells and um, really really being able to manipulate your your warband, being able to make, manipulate his warband, being able to manipulate the table, um, and just really kind of change the rules of what's going on as, as you're playing so that every time you have a turn, you feel like you're making an important decision. Um, right. So those are the two ideas that kind of, or the two dissatisfactions, I suppose, and, and I'm sure there are elements of these that exist in, in the other games that exist, but what I was looking for, and so, how I squished them together um, and really just wrote this game in just a glut of enthusiasm because, as I said, I, I wasn't really a game designer before then and didn't didn't know and understand a lot of kind of the rules of game design that I know now, which, which was good in the sense that it allowed me to, to probably break some rules. Mm-hmm. Um, bad in the sense that some of those rules probably shouldn't have been broken. Um, <laughs> right and and so now i'm i'm going back 5 6 years later and taking a whole look fresh look at the game and saying all right here here's a few of the things that i could have done better um, like for example those spells not all of them are are particularly well balanced versus the other spells so i was able to go through and increase their power or you know increase their utility cool. or or in a, case, a couple of cases, just drop them completely and replace them with more interesting or better, better versions. Um, so,
0: so that's one of the, the things I did there. Um, and you added more scenarios to give players I more did, different add, ways to play.
1: Yeah, I think that's another thing that um, that's really really important for skirmish gaming because mm-hmm. even as I've added this this element of of decision making that. That perhaps isn't present in some games, you know, when you're when you're only playing with 10 figures or so, and your capabilities, although during a campaign they will change and they will modify, right, they're still only of so great a range. To keep the game fresh and interesting, you need to change something. And and thus scenarios become hugely important for Frostgrave. And luckily, the setting for Frostgrave plays into this hugely because because it's a ruined magical city i can pretty much justify anything um you know (laughs) a wizard did it this is this is the wizard doing it Mm -hmm. and and once upon a time all these wizards were doing it and making life easy for themselves by using magic but now a millennium later everything's broken and that includes all the magic they used so there's all kinds of weird things going on and weird stuff happening and and you're walking right into that. Mm-hmm. So I can I can justify any kind of weird special roles I want in a scenario. And um, this just gives you so much flexibility and, and allows me to just create all kinds of different settings and and and, and adventure, you know. That's this this is what adventure is: it's it's exploration and encountering these unknown things and and dealing with. Problems you'd never thought you'd have to deal with. Exactly. And and that's, you know, and that's, so there's, there's 10, when I wrote Frostgrave, I put 10 scenarios in there and they're, they're actually looking back. I now think of them as quite light uh, scenarios because they only have kind of like one little weird element going on in them. Right, Um, And then as I, I wrote supplement after supplement uh, both my, kind of ability as a game writer and and my practice at creativity combined and allowed me to grow this but also because players themselves have become more comfortable with the system none of us had to worry about understanding the basic rules right so we could focus more on special rules so these scenarios become more and more complex and um you know at, at the highest level you've got some really weird things going on my favorite <laughs> my favorite one that that i don't think many people have played because it requires a very specific terrain piece so i wrote one scenario that has a circular step pyramid in the middle but each of the steps of the pyramid spins independently um <laughs> which you know like i said normally i don't push people that far to have to make specific terrain but right. for this one i did and but it, it just really messes with your mind that each time you're putting a figure on a on a step of the pyramid, it's going to twist in a different direction. You guys end up, you know, in places you never really expected them to be, and that's, and that's just a, a huge example of what that's I try awesome. to do on a smaller level. In most cases, is to kind of, you know, have the scenario misdirect you and get you into trouble. Yeah. You know, because messing with your plans is actually the the easiest way to to make it fun and to give you exciting stories. You're going to talk about later like oh man i just never expected that to happen yeah and um, so when i came to write second edition um, my original idea was i'm going to replace the 10 scenarios from the first book with 10 new ones but uh, the more i did that i thought actually those those 10 really do their job well They really introduced the game mm-hmm. well for you so in the end i decided i'm going to keep those 10 and actually i'm going to add 10 new ones so there's now 20 scenarios in the book nice. and you've got the 10 introductory ones but you've also got 10 that are increasingly more complex so that you can see what the game is capable of and what it can do and some of what you'll find in some of the supplements if you go that way.
0: Right. Well, I I guess it's also important to mention um, that even though this is a new uh, Frostgrave 2, it's a new quote-unquote version of the game, um, all of those wonderful expansions and supplements that you talked about are still backward compatible. Um, the game is still the same, but it has been modified and updated, but not in a way that invalidates any of the previous releases. Correct.
1: Correct. Um, well, with, with with one exception, there's, there's, uh, the grimoire, which is the spell cards won't work anymore because the spells have changed so much, but correct, but all the books, and there's one other deck of cards called ulterior motives that'll work. Um, yeah, essentially like if, if you stripped out kind of spells and and the scenarios and all that and just looked at what are the basic mechanics of this game that has changed very very little right to second edition um there's a few more kind of limitations at kind of upper and bottom limits and things like that just to to bring a little more balance to the game Mm -hmm. but you know if if you've already played first edition there's going to be nothing in the second that shocks you in terms of wait a minute that's not how we used to do it right Um, which made it easy to make it it backwards compatible um, which was always my goal because you know why would I want to invalidate all this work I've done right you know I want people to still be able to use this stuff and I want to still be able to use this stuff and mm-hmm. so yeah that was that was key to, to doing this was you know don't don't mess anything up
0: <laughs> all right now um yeah. this how, how what does that mean for um, this the I, I want to say the one point uh, Frostgrave 1.5 or Frostgrave in Another World, Ghost <laughs> um, Archipelago, which is sort of yeah. it's it sort of rather than being in a frozen magical city, um, it is in more of a uh, swampy jungle, pirate-infested uh, land where you have more superheroes i mean but not superheroes uh more yeah there aren't wizards so much as uh amazing individuals who uh um, yeah it's
1: it's superheroes is kind of it's a tough word because it makes you think of a completely different genre captain but, america yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> superhuman I mean, that's that's yeah that's that's what these guys are they're they're kind of Their magic expressed within an individual as opposed to magic expressed out of one like a wizard does. Right. You know, this is... My magic allows me to to jump higher, run faster, you know, be Captain America, Mm -hmm. you know, or Spider-Man or some of those low-level guys. Um, And so... So some of what is in Frostgrave's second edition was already in Ghost Archipelago because Ghost Archipelago came out several years after Frostgrave. So by that point I was already aware of some of the, the the issues that I wanted to correct and change and was able to do that with Ghost Archipelago. That said the major changes to Frostgrave 2 are kind of in the spells right. anyway, which aren't relevant to to Ghost Archipelago. So that wasn't a big deal. There are a few elements that are found in Frostgrave 2 that people might want to take back and, and work into their games mm-hmm. of, of ghost archipelago they're, they're they're relatively minor things um but at, as with all my games you know i am i am the biggest believer ever in in house rules in in war games because yeah. <laughs> because you know what what is a war game but a collection of one individual's house rules and um mm-hmm. and also like the whole point of this this hobby is to have fun, and if you can create new rules that help you have fun, why would you not do that? So, so yeah, I, I think people might do a few house rules, but but really, Ghost Dark stands alone uh, pretty well. And people have asked me, you know, are we going to see a second edition of that? And the answer is maybe someday, but not now. There's nothing. I don't see anything in it that cries out. I'm such a problem that you know, right. I need to be addressed in in a second edition. Um there, there's even very little errata for, for ghost archipelago because like I said a lot
0: of the, the core system
1: problems have been hammered out in, in Frostgrave.
0: Yeah anyway. There you go. So, now what is surprising for me as a system is that uh and I and I love that you were talking about the Choice of dice when you were getting into your explanation of Oathmark and how that led you to the D10. Um, yep. Frostgrave's fairly original in that it's a D20 system, um, <laughs> which you rarely see out of role playing, and uh, is really cool to see on in a tabletop war game uh, an yep. unmodified D20. It's not like it's there are some game systems that have D20s with symbols on them and rather than numbers, but nope, it, it's it's a D20. It's a twenty sided <laughs> yeah. dice. Um, what led you to the d twenty and as 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 your weapon of choice, I guess.
1: Okay, uh, a couple of things. One, it, it harkens back to Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, you know dun- the d twenty is the die you roll mm-hmm. by far the most in Dungeons and Dragons, and I wanted to to have a little bit of that classic role play feel yeah. in in my game. Um, but also. Frostgrave is a game that's designed to be wild. Yeah. It's it's designed for the unexpected to happen more than it happens in most other war games. Mm-hmm. You know, big people. Some people deride it as being swingy, and um, they are right in that it's swingy. Um, I think they're wrong in deriding it for that. Um, right, it's swingy <laughs> but, by design. But you know, exactly. That's you know that's that's what kind of gamer you are. I love. Yeah. I love chaos on the table. Um, other people want a much more controlled game. That's that's fine. Um, but to get that kind of chaos, you need a randomizer that allows for it. Um, and the D20 is the biggest commonly rolled single die, you know, and the yeah. easiest to obtain. So it, it works well for that. And also because, because of something I was really working hard to do with the combat system which was i knew from the offset i wanted a combat system where both players rolled one die and that determined both who won the fight and how much damage was done right and to do that you need well to do that easier i needed something that had larger numbers than, than was available on a D10 or lower or a D twelve and lower. So right. really the, the D twenty was the only good option for that. Nice. So so it's both mechanical and feel. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, you can have in, in the game, of course, I said you do have a wizard. Um, but then the wizard has a party. Uh, and that and in that it sort of resembles a like an adventurer's party, because that is literally yeah. what you're doing. You're 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 going in. You're exploring. Um, you will have your mule to carry things. You will have you know bowmen to shoot things. Uh, rangers. You'll have you know fighters. You'll have thieves. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about when you are creating your Frostgrave Warband? Um, how does your narrative view of gaming play into that? Because again, it is very narrative driven.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that was definitely a kind of a key to the design was that you know in some ways you are are designing your adventurer party by the game mechanics the wizard is by far the focus but you know if you've ever played D&D at higher level the wizard is actually the focus cuz he's the mm-hmm. one you always turn to when you know things hit the fan exactly. he's the only one that has those huge capabilities but um but that also goes to like just this idea of what's the what's the perfect kind of number of miniatures to paint for a game and what's the the number that i can have that i can see each one individually and think about them individually mm-hmm. and um and, and you know so it kind of landed on the number ten. So you got the wizard and his apprentice and then you got eight guys and um you know and to to allow people to have that flexibility of yeah you know i'm going to want a couple of a couple of heavy front fighters, I'm going to want a couple of bowmen, I'm going to want a thief, I'm going to want a few specialists, and just give you that ability to mix and match. Um, and, and, and this is actually a good example of what I talked about way back at the beginning of that kind of balance of freedom versus um, the, the kind of balance of the game mechanics. And I, I basically went a little too far with first edition Frostgraven and, in and letting players be free to assemble any warband they wanted Mm -hmm. which which isn't so much a problem when you're just sitting down to play a one-off game but can can quickly spin out of control in a campaign luckily it's not since it is a narrative game it's not the kind of game that tends to attract min max players anyway so it wasn't a huge issue but as a game designer it was like a clunk in the system that i could Mm -hmm. never stop seeing and so that's that's slightly modified with with second edition and that you've kind of of broken soldiers into two categories, and basically, you can only have so many soldiers from the good category. Um, that <laughs> good is a little unfair, right, but you, right. you know, you can only have four from the specialists that you know have the higher capabilities. Whereas, you got to have some of your guys that are kind of more basic, they can still be good fighters, but they're, right. they're more basic.
0: So, but you got to have and grunts, that, basic grunts, yeah. You know,
1: they can they can be well, well skilled grunts, but yeah, they're, they're just the guy who stands in the front with the sword and the shield. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that really helps keep balance in, a, in an ongoing campaign. And it helps the narrative because it, it helps. One, it makes you think about your party more um, because you can't just go, I'm going to buy all the best guys. You got to really right. think about, is my party going to be more kind of a shooty, stealthy party or is my party going to be more frontline fire party? And, and it makes those specialists a little more characterful in and of themselves because they're a little more special. and So you think about them a bit more.
0: Nice. Well, I guess from a purely selfish standpoint, as I just got Frostgrave, and I'm about to get Frostgrave version two, um, given that there are so many books, where (laughs) do you recommend, you being the man who's written them, uh, I could ask on Facebook and get a million pundits uh, answers, and I probably (laughs) will at some point. What's a good place to start if you are looking to expand beyond the basic book? And that is okay. not to say the basic book's lacking. In fact, I was quite impressed flipping through it. Um, not only is it beautifully hardbacked like the Oathmark book um, with great color pictures, uh, the there's a lot of depth to it, including a great sort of monster manual in the back of the book that's full of all sorts of creatures to put on the tabletop. So if you wanted to add to that, where would you recommend for a, a new player of the game?
1: Okay. Um, so there's a book called The Frostgrave Folio, which... Actually, so after Frostgrave came out, um, and it kind of became a success really quickly, um, Osprey wanted me to write some additional content for Mm. it. Uh, but faster than, than they could traditionally publish. So there was a, a set of eBooks, kind of mini eBooks released, and, um, these were later collected into the Frostgrave folio. So the folio is actually kind of like four or five, I can't remember now, eBooks or little books collected together. And um, so not only do you get really good variety from that book, I think there's a few things that are gonna really interest people. Um, Most notably, it's got the rules for captains. So in the basic game, only your wizard kind of gains levels and and gets much better. All, All the other soldiers, they can get better equipment, but more or less stay the same the captain however is a, a soldier you know the kind of leader of your soldiers and he actually also gains experience unless you have another real character in your warband yeah. um it's it's popular enough that i think most people like using the rule it's it's but i think it's right to leave it out of the main book because it it's, it does add a layer of complexity that not everyone's going to want right um, the other thing that book has is it's got one of the books called Dark Alchemy, and that's got three scenarios that are designed to be played solo. And um, so that was the first time I started kind of tinkering with solo gaming. And it's just a great way to learn the game, essentially, if, if you're on your own, because one, it only uses uh, most of the scenarios, only use half size warbands, and they're very quick. but. It just allows you to to get a grip on the game before you kind of dive into the competitive end of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 like I said, there's just there's some other there's more scenarios in there, and it just gives you a good variety. So if you're if you're thinking I want more to this game, that's that's a good place awesome. to go. That's a great recommendation. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Well, that segues nicely to the 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 other elephant in the room, speaking of cel, uh, solo war gaming, given that a lot of us are <laughs> locked down and shut down these days. Uh, and that is um, when we were speaking to Chris from Modiphius last week, he mentioned mm-hmm. that he has published or they published um, one of your rule sets in a beautiful collector's edition with a faux lever cover, um, and beautiful, you know, beautiful layout, uh, and that mm-hmm. would be your game, Rangers of Shadow Deep, which is a solo slash uh, uh, cooperative gaming ga- experience uh, tabletop game that people can use. Can you tell us a little bit about that game and how it is similar and different from the other games that you've re- you've written? Because again, North Star makes the models, and because yep. North Star makes the models for Oathmark, Frostgrave, and Rangers. You look at the models, and they're almost interchangeable. And so when you're looking at it from a layman, uh, sometimes yeah. it can be confusing which one goes where and how. Um, and they are all beautifully sculpted. And so I've been collecting them for various projects for quite a while. But then to actually realize, oh, yeah, these actually go to another game system. I should really look into that. Um and then trying to figure out, because I've taken them all out of their clan packs, wait, which game system did this go to? Um, yeah, can you talk to us a little bit about Shadow, uh, sorry, Rangers of Shadow Deep and how that is similar and different from your other games? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think in some ways it's good that I'm a, I'm a slight fan of Chaos, because if, you, if you, you look at my games and kind of their relationships to each other and to different companies and stuff... <laughs> It's one of those things that in retrospect it's like that was not the wisest way to do all that but of course <laughs> things don't happen in retrospect they happen one at a time and Right. you know so if you're just looking at it now it looks like well this is a confusing situation you know it's it's be- it was not designed that way it just grew organically that way but right. um, so Rangers of Shadow Deep was my attempt to see how far I could push tabletop wargaming towards traditional role-playing, you know, in the kind of old mm. D&D school. Um, because, because I love that, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the yeah. things that drives me. Well, whereas Frostgrave is very much a narrative war game. It's designed to tell stories. It's still competitive in a way that role-playing isn't. You're still trying to beat your opponent or at right. least get one up on your opponent. And that's, you know, that's not what most role-playing is anyway. Um so I wanted to see if I could, yeah, use use little men on the table to, to do that. And the first way to do that is to not make it competitive, mm-hmm. is to make it cooperative. And game design-wise, solo and cooperative are incredibly close. They're very similar thing, ways to approach game design. Um and, and in fact, I mean co- co-op can be as much as just take solo and cut it into half. Um, It can also be much more complicated than that. But but if you're doing one, you can probably arrange for it to be done the other way too. Um, So so I took the Frostgrave core mechanics, you know, kind of the fighting rules at any rate and the moving rules and and started with them because I was already familiar with them. And Mm -hmm. one of the beauties of working with the same core system is that it allows you to push your imagination out in other ways. Mm. So since I didn't have to worry about those hardcore mechanics, I got to devote more time to how can I make this work as a solo thing as opposed to to a competitive thing. Right. And um, and that it was just kind of something I did in in my spare time as I was working on other things, and um, and it just grew and grew. And one of the ways that that I went about making it constructing it was I knew that I wanted it to be much more narrative driven in the sense that I was creating a narrative. So, so Frostgrave, you have all these scenarios and they're they're more like scenes that the players get to kind of arrange in any way they want to build their story. Right. In Rangers of Shadow Deep, I'm creating scenarios that are mostly designed to be played sequentially um, and tells this, this overarching story of, of this war. And, um, there's still huge amounts of freedom for you to create your character and to, to kind of envision the world in the way you want it to be and and to to play it the way you want to. but essentially you're you're following a rough path path that I'm setting. Mm. Um, and this allows me to to make those scenarios more intricate story wise. Mm-hmm. so instead of... In Frostgrave, where you're basically there to get treasure, and weird things are happening. Here, that weird thing happening is why you're there, and you know that may be because you have to investigate it, or you may have to kill it, or you may have to, right? You know, just get across it. But um, it's easier to kind of create these these different uh, reasons for doing things. Um, and also, I, I very much because it's part of my role-playing background. I wanted to make creating a character a real thing um so you know in Frostgrave you create a wizard and you give them spells and stuff like that here this rangers takes that to another takes that another step forward so you have skills and you have um, actual companions in a different way than the soldiers are there these are you know people kind of you recruit Mm -hmm. and that's based on who your character is and how much influence they have and you have kind of heroic abilities that you choose and so you have have much more of a kind of character sheet in the classic role-playing sense Mm um and you, you know, those skills come up during a game in a way that they don't in most war games. So that you can, you know, search chests or look for traps or you mm-hmm. know climb that wall or you know do these kind of other adventury things that, that I really love, but aren't aren't so great often in a competitive war game. Right. Um, and when I when I finally got around to finishing that, um, I decided to self publish it, which um, I'd been experimenting with a little bit of self publishing with spellcaster which is a frost magazine that i do and and having a lot of fun with it and um and also just thinking about being a freelance writer and Mm -hmm. how perilous that can be um and so just trying to set up different avenues of income so that if some if one of those falls apart i've got something to to fall back on and self-publishing seemed a good way to do that and um so so i put it out and um it, it kind of exploded in a way that I just yeah. never anticipated at all. <laughs> you know, and I thought this is going to be a fun little thing. And actually it, it really took off. And, um, uh, so yeah, so I started writing supplements for it as well. And, um, after about a year, uh, Chris at Modiphius came knocking, wanting to do this kind of special edition of it because he, he played it and really enjoyed it. And, yeah. And, um, and it's interesting because, you know, there, there was a point in my life where if someone had made that offer to me, I would have just absolutely fallen over myself saying, yes, you know, we want to produce a beautiful version of your book. But absolutely. <laughs> Who you doesn't
0: know. want that, right? Yeah.
1: Exactly. Beautiful versions of the book is, is kind of why I got into this. Mm-hmm. But, um, but at the same time, I was actually having a lot of fun self-publishing because of just the the ultimate freedom it gave me. Of, right. I don't have to ask anybody or be answerable to anybody for what I'm creating and how I'm putting it out and when I'm putting it out. Um, but eventually... Um, eventually, a couple of things happened. One, that, that lore of the good-looking book just got too great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he sh- showed me samples of what he could do and, and, and how nice it could be made. And, um, and also, I think the, the game peaked a little bit in the sense that you know it, it was only picking up new players at a much slower steady pace right. which happens to all games um and if i ever wanted to kind of get it out to a wider audience than could be obtained through self-publishing it right then then i would have to go with the traditional publisher so those yeah. two things kind of came together and um thankfully and wonderfully yeah chris really lived up to his promise and the, and the book is actually just stunning it's yeah. just just as good as anything i could have ever hoped for
0: (laughs) it i haven't seen one in person but just having seen a lot of pictures through reviews online it looks amazing so yeah yeah and even like
1: the the pictures online don't even do it justice because of the way because the the kind of logo is is stamped into the thing which doesn't come across in photograph as well as it does live but um yeah, just to pick it up and hold it, and it's it's a beautiful thing. Oh, and, um, sweet. So no no regrets on that score. Now <laughs> now,
0: if folks want to pick that up in the land of COVID. Yep. Besides ordering it straight from Modiphius, and they are shipping, yep. so don't worry if they're shut there. down. They're not. They're shipping. You can get it. Um, but if folks want it um, on this side of the planet, which can take shipping, can be a little problematic at this point, uh, it is available through Drive Through RPG. Am I correct in saying that? Um, you can get.
1: You can get the uh, PDF through DriveThruRPG, mm-hmm. um, or you can get it from Modifius. Um, I, I should say, to point out one thing. So, there are now kind of two editions of the game floating around. There's the original uh, kind of black cover edition, and mm-hmm. then you've got the deluxe Modifius green. And and really, unless you're interested in the history of the game, there's no reason not to go with the deluxe. Right. Um, it's just got some corrections and stuff in it, and it's it doesn't cost any more in PDF. Um, so the original edition isn't even obtainable in, in print anymore because it, it it just doesn't need to. Right. Um, so if you want it in print, uh, get the modifius edition. Um, and there are there are some places in Australia that have it. I, I, it's not something I pay a huge amount of attention to, not not being relevant to my own ordering. But I've seen people saying that they've got it in Australia. Um, but if you can't find somewhere in Australia, yeah, you can get it from modifius You can also get it from North Star. He'll ship it to Australia, and obviously he's got. Um, the official miniature line to go with it again. Not that you need the official miniatures, but right. they are beautiful. So, oh <laughs> man, they them, are. He's got them. Um,
0: and it so. should be said that if you order it from Modiphius and you do want to read it while it's in the mail, um, at the moment, if you order the deluxe edition from a you get the PDF for free. Yep. So you That's can correct. read it while you wait. So there you go, yep. guys. Um Well, yeah, and there, there yeah. is
1: actually an element of having the PDF being a good thing because they're, there probably are some things you might want to print out when you play.
0: Yeah. So there you go. Something to think about. Well, I think that takes us full circle. Joseph, thank you so <laughs> much for coming on, man. That that yeah, you. Thanks for having me. This has been fantastic. I'm so glad you came on, um, man. I, it's rarely that I talk with an author about three game systems in one night. In <laughs> fact, I can't think of a time I've ever done that. And um, uh, yeah, it's it's been great, man. Thank you so much. No problem.
1: It's been a been a fun time.
0: Right on. Um, so, when exactly does Frostgrave Two come out so we know to look for it? Um, and the expansions for Oathmark, uh, when can we look for those as well? Um, uh, so, both both the first expansion,
1: Battlesworn for Oathmark, and the Frostgrave book are due out in August. Uh, I think August twentieth is the official date. Mm-hmm. Uh, often these things start slipping out a bit early. So, um, but but in August time is when both of those things will will be hitting. Um, And yeah, you can get those, you'll be able to get them through North star or Osprey or
0: anywhere you get Osprey books from.
1: So they should be pretty commonly available. uh, Hopefully even during
0: these times. Absolutely. And North star is tremendously, uh, both handy and reliable um i've been ordering from them throughout this entire process and uh yeah Yeah. they they've delivered on time on target every time so uh if you have not checked out north star miniatures in the uk guys they have some fantastic they have a huge selection of models slash rules but they are really good so yeah highly recommended i don't think i've ever mentioned them on a podcast but yeah hell yeah check them out they're great
1: (laughs) yeah they're kind of they've become sort of the um the main hub, if you want smaller games, you know, yeah. so that they don't carry a kind of GW and right. You know, fantasy flight and things like that. But if you want miniatures from noted individual sculptors, or if you want smaller hit rule sets or, you know, things like saga or something like that, he's got all that. He's, you know, he's the guy. <laughs> oh yeah.
0: Nick does so, some great stuff. Well, indeed. Joseph, thank you so much. Um, yep. Guys, as as I mentioned earlier in this episode, um, lots of people have asked me to have Joseph on or to talk about his games. Um, If you would like to say, if you would like to make suggestions for things that we talk about on the show, Please uh, let me know um, if you search "cast dice" on Facebook. That's C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. Uh, if you find the the page that's associated with that, the Cast Dice podcast. Uh, if you message that page, there is only one person at the other end. That's me. My name is Brad. Hi. Um, please send us a message. Um, it has been really, really. Uh, I, I don't. It, it it means a lot that during these times of isolation, in particular. Um, a lot of people, uh, most of the people who listen to this show are in the US and the UK, uh, just looking at how numbers work. And uh, quite a few of you have seen that Melbourne, Melbourne's been shut down recently. Um, it's, it's, it means a lot that quite a few of you who listen to this show, many of whom have never messaged before, have just messaged to say, hey man, uh, solid what's going on in Melbourne. I hope you guys are all right. So um, guys... That, that really, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate those messages. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for the well wishes. And uh, guys, I hope you all stay safe out there. And as our good buddy Casey always says, guys, when you're playing these games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Thank mm-hmm. you.